start a new series, Pilgrims and Priests. Uh, We'll explain those two words. Really, tonight's about those two words, or Peter's version of those two words, elect exiles. Tonight's message is really just about those two words as we get into this new series uh, in the book of 1 Peter. Let me pray for us, since this is God's word, and we need it to do supernatural things, not just natural things. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, you are good. You are good. And you love us. I thank you that you are a talkative God, that you uh, do not hide, you don't hold back. You're not shy, but you want to be known. You want to commune with us and communicate with us. And tonight, um, you are helping locate us, and you're helping us define the relationship between us and the world. We're a room full of people, like Alex said in his prayer. We're all over the map. We know you. We want to know you more. Some of us don't know you, but want to. Some of us don't know you and don't really know if we want to. Jesus, um, meet each of us where we are. You yourself. Would you be the one who meets each of us where we are, even now through your word? We pray it in your name and power. Amen. Well, before we... My family and I moved back to Athens five years ago. Many of you know we lived out in New Mexico. We lived in the desert out there. And a couple of my best friends were on search and rescue teams. That's what they did. Uh, My buddy Zach was Border Patrol, is Border Patrol, and he's on their search and rescue team. And one of my buddies, Chris, worked for one of the fire departments. And whenever someone was reported missing or lost, whether they were... uh, You know, people from my town, Las Cruces, or migrants crossing the border coming into the U.S., Chris and Zach and their crews would get the call. And the calls were always emergencies because it was was the desert. And in the desert, you can't be lost for long. You either uh, get reoriented and find your bearings or are rescued and you survive or you don't. So after years of sitting around um, at bars or fire pits, just hearing stories from Chris and Zach about calls that they had gone out at with search and rescue, I kind of saw a pattern of the fatal mistakes that people make when they get lost in the wilderness or lost in a desert. It's a series of decisions and mistakes that seems automatic. It seems like it just happens, but it's actually decisions that people make under panic and distress. First is panic kicks in when you realize you're lost, right? That first sensation of like, I don't know if I'm on the trail anymore. And then your mind is flooded with what ifs. You're just, you're ambushed by the what if questions. What if it gets dark? What if it's too cold tonight? What if we don't have enough water? What if no one knows we're missing? What if help doesn't come? What if every step I take I'm getting more lost? And that really escalates the panic. So then you start hurriedly running around trying to retrace your steps or run around looking for anything that looks familiar. And all the while, you're getting more dehydrated, which is making you more disoriented, which is putting you in greater danger of being able to survive. Do you know what you're supposed to do if you get lost? out in the wild or out in the wilderness, you know what you're supposed to do, what Zach and Chris and experts would tell you? It's so simple, but the reason it's so hard is it's so counterintuitive. It cuts against the grain of every primal instinct you have. 
what you're supposed to do is stop and sit and calmly think through a plan, which seems like a tall order in that situation, but to calm down and to kind of think through a plan. What you're supposed to do next, if you're able, is find some kind of high ground, whether it's a hill nearby that you can go climb or a tree or anything so that you can get up above the, the tangled confusion of where you are, the labyrinth of where you are, so that you can get up above it and look down and see the whole landscape. Because if you do, maybe you see some familiar landmark or you see some smoke from someone's house or a campfire and you can walk in that direction. You're able to locate yourself. And once you know where you are again, hope comes back. Calm is restored. And you know which direction to walk to for help. Um, I hope there's not a ton of y'all who've been like lost out in the wild. It's a scary experience if you've had it. I hope that's a minority of us in the room. But for all of us, we've gotten lost at some point. Most of you, it's in the mountains of North Carolina trying to find winter retreat in the dark of the fog, and you're on some gravel road at someone's farm, and you're like, this doesn't look like where I'm supposed to be. But you know that like nauseating, anxious feeling where you start to feel the panic coming in and start to make maybe not great decisions about how to get found. The reason I'm talking about this and I bring it up is because you have the same reaction to spiritual disorientation as you do to spatial disorientation. That's a mouthful. Spatial disorientation is just when you get lost, right? You're driving, you're not paying attention, you realize, oh, I don't know where I am, how do I get back? We have the same sensation, though, spiritually or existentially. Uh, these moments when you're like, where am I? Where's God? Why don't I recognize any of the surroundings? Is this normal? Do other people feel this, or is it just me? Did I miss a turn or a memo somewhere? And usually the panic starts to kick in, and the heart rate raises a little bit, and we kind of begin to freak out a little bit. Peter has a simple answer to the question um, of where does this door, what disorients us? Where does it come from? When you get lost on the road, it's obvious. What about when you get lost as a Christian living in this world and you don't know where you are anymore and it just doesn't feel familiar and you're starting to get scared? What causes that? Where does it come from? Peter's answer is very simple. It's in fact just one word. He says, where it comes from is the fact that you are in exile that God calls you in exile. The God who has given you birth and made you alive and loved you and bound you to himself forever in friendship, he has labeled you, called you in exile. And um, we don't really use this word a lot. I mean, we know it's not a great word. Like, who wants to be in exile? Who wants to be exiled? We know it's bad, but we don't really use the word. In, in, in chapter two of this book, verse 11 Peter connects this word to another word. It gives us a synonym so we can get a little bit of a better definition. He says he calls Christians living in the world sojourners, which is another word for pilgrims, which is not getting us any closer to understanding it. Both words that haven't been spoken in hundreds of years. So what is he calling you? What is he saying your experience in this world will feel like? Not because there's something wrong with you, not because there's a glitch in you, but because it's a feature. It's normal. 
It's supposed to feel that way for Christians living in the world. Well, here's some other synonyms. Sojourner or pilgrim or exile are old words for new words that we have that are stigmatized and they're loaded with baggage. Words like foreigner or migrant, like a picture of these migrants in the southern desert crossing the border into the U.S., or resident alien or refugee. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying to God's refugees, to his migrants, to foreigners in the world, to resident aliens. That's what he's, he's, he's naming and labeling. Question. He, he's locating us. Why, real quick, why are we exiles? Why, uh, why is this the case? There's two reasons. In one sense, you could say that every human being feels like an exile, feels out of place, like a square peg in a round hole. Everybody feels that way, socially, relationally, in their job. Um, and, and part of it, especially spiritually, we just feel like we're clumsy spiritually, we don't know much. Part of the reason why is we are exiles. We were made for intimate friendship with God in a perfect world. That's why everybody in the room has a very specific definition of perfection. And it's why we are so disappointed because we, we know what perfection is and we know we're not there and so we experience disappointment and a sense of homesickness. We have a very clear sense of what home should feel like, but we know we're not there. Everybody feels that. So in one sense, every human being is in exile because we've been kicked out of Eden when our ancient ancestors pushed back against God and didn't want him. Everybody feels that if you really get to talk to them. But, but Peter's saying something else. He's saying for Christians, it's almost like we're double exiles because God has reconciled you to himself. He has, you know, it's like picked up a branch off the ground and, and fused you back into himself in love and in relationship. He's made you one with him now but you live in a world where he's not done that to the world around you or perhaps some of the people around you. And so uh, you experience friction there, like an oil and water kind of difference there. That's another source of our exile, of why we feel so strange and, Ill and not fitting in this world. It makes us different. Jesus' work in your life makes you unique and different from other people around you. Different in good ways, but also different in ways that, that they would say are off-putting or bad or annoying or obnoxious or dangerous. Many of you don't need me to tell you this because you feel it. You were tracking with me as soon as I said, as soon as Abby read the passage, elect exiles. You're like, well, that, I feel that way. And the reason why maybe you feel it intensely is maybe you're not as much in a Christian bubble as other people in the room. Your family is not Christians. You don't work at a Christian camp every summer. You, you live with a, a, lots of friends that you love dearly. Some of them love God. Some of them don't care about God at all. And it's right up in your face every day. You might be in a department or a program at UGA. It just feels harder to be a Christian there than other departments or programs. Some of you went home on Christmas break and uh, you have this schizophrenic experience with your family at home. You're like, I love these people more than anyone else in the world and they know and love me, but I feel more misunderstood by them than anybody else. And you feel so lonely 
in the presence of people that you love. They don't get you. They don't understand you, what makes you tick. Um, For some of you, God recently changed your heart this year, last year. He made you alive. But all your best friends became became friends with old you, not new you. And so you have this like illusion of deep friendship, but you can't have as deep conversations anymore because they don't get you and you don't get them. You're not interested in the same things as much anymore. And it's just like you're on different pages and you feel lonelier and lonelier. Or you're one of the few, uh, few girls in your sorority who actually knows Jesus. There might be a handful of you Uh, and you love your sorority, and you love the girls in it, but it's a regular occurrence to kind of hear third-hand jokes that you were the butt of because of how weird they think you are and the decisions that you make, what you don't join them in, or how you behave. And you can kind of let it go a little bit, but it really does bother you too because the signal and the message you're getting is you're not one of us, you don't belong. You don't fit. You're different, but not in a cool way. Some of you might have, um, maybe you are a little bit more in a bubble of, you know, most of the people that you're around any given week are Christians, um, and so, but, but you can see the writing on the wall, too. You see the trend lines. Your whole life has kind of, you've grown up as the sibling of secularism. You both grew up together, came of age together, and are kind of unleashed into America right about the same time. And so you might be watching your generation with sadness as it seems that they kind of throw God away like the horse and buggy, just obsolete. I'm not against horses and buggies, but who needs that? Haven't we moved on as a society and you feel anxious about that? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for the country? You feel sad. You might feel frustrated. Some of you personally wrestle with the fact that all my friends who don't even believe in God seem really happy, and maybe legitimately they are happy. They're content. And now you're wondering, then, why do, why do I need God? You can be happy without him. Why do I need him? Exilic tensions. This is what, this is what migrants and foreigners and exiles, spiritually out of place in this, in this land, in this world, that's what they feel like. That's what they think. One way or another, this is your daily experience. Some of you might feel like a pioneer. Um, I have this, I'm at a weird age right now because I'm exactly double the age of a lot of you and literally the years some of y'all were born, I was here as a student. And so I've seen 20 years of change at UGA. I loved this place then and I love it now. I think it's an amazing place. Um, I think it's a very loving place. Um, But I, I used to table when I was an intern on campus. Hey, come to RUF, come to this thing. And we do it in the summer times now and sometimes during the school year now. And I've seen the change in response. The polite, oh, I'm not religious. And I'm like, I don't care, come. Do you want to have fun? Do you want to make friends? But I've seen the change. Again, your lifetime, you've seen the collapse of cultural Christianity where, where Christianity was at the center of our society and is now at the fringes and pushed out more. You experience these things. So 
Maybe your church, maybe a place like RUF helps you make sense of that and encourages you. Maybe your church just makes you mad because they don't talk about this stuff and it feels like everybody's living in 1990 still. Or anxiously trying to bring back some bygone era. And it just makes you mad. So where does scripture come in and help us here? A few ways in this particular, these, just these short little verses. First, by showing you that none of this is new. You are not in some unprecedented historical moment. There are, I think, some unique things in Western culture. It's the first time probably in 1,700 years where Christianity is no longer the good kind of anchor, the core of a society. The, the motivating reason to plant colleges and hospitals and orphanages and whatever else, now it's the, the, the antagonist. It's, it's a bad force in society. That's new. But Christians being strange and out of place in the world and not fitting in and being seen as different and being kind of ostracized, that's not new. Which means it, it takes some stress out of the equation. Uh, the world's not going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus is not frantically sweating, panicked. What am I going to do? He's very calm with a very steady hand. So in one sense, um, the fact that this was written about 100 years, uh, 100 AD, uh, for Christians in that moment, tells you this is not anything new. Christians 2,000 years ago felt just like you feel. Uh, If you could read their journals and their diaries, they would write about similar experiences that you have Another thing, another way the scripture helps us here is it, it, it reframes, it sets expectations of what should you expect your relationship with uh, a non-believing world to, to look like, feel like, and to be like? What's par for the course and what's not? Um, it helps you define your relationship, define the relationship between you and the world. Um, you know, it, with couples, with friends, with anything, relationships where there's not, where you don't define the relationship Feelings end up getting hurt. Expectations end up getting misplaced. You end up in a lot of misunderstandings and confusion with each other. But here is, here is, here is God through this letter helping you def- redefine the relationship between you and the Lord, or sorry, you and the world. This affirms your experience. If you were wondering, am I the only one? No, you're not. You're in great company. But also, uh, Scripture is, is beautiful in how it comes alongside of us and shows us how we're to live faithfully in the midst of this situation, which, again, is not new or unique to you. It's always been the situation God's people have lived in, all the way back through the Old Testament. Israel, out of place, didn't fit, seen as weird. The culture that it was in didn't value it. Um, So how do we live faithfully in the midst of this? Um, Here's why we're talking about this this semester, by the way. Because if we don't have these conversations, you'll feel disoriented and you'll you'll start acting out of panic. It's the whole opening stories that I was telling you. If we don't get our bearings... and and realize where we are and what's going on and how we're to relate in this moment, um, we will just kind of automatically react. And usually out of anxiety or out of panic, you might see people, you might yourself feel the pull to kind of respond to this in a culture war kind of a way. 
Maybe you feel like your parents or your grandparents or, or people back home do that. Yell louder and louder against the culture. Condemn the culture more and more. Or try to vote our way back into power. It's like we got to get power. Somehow we got to get power back so that we can set the rules. That's not how we're to respond. That's not what Peter is calling God's people to. Um, Or some people respond in panic or anxiety of kind of the Amish mode of retreat. Get back to the bubble. And it's kind of like wash your hands of the world. Out of sight, out of mind. I mean, sucks to be y'all. We're over here. We're going to do our thing. That's not how God is calling his people to faithfully live in the midst of the world. Instead, he's calling you to embrace where he's put you, which big picture is in this world, but also includes things like in this historical moment, in this generation, in this moment in American history, in this moment of culture change, Acts chapter 17. Paul's preaching to a bunch of people who don't believe anything that he's saying in Athens, Greece. And Paul says this little throwaway line in his, in his sermon. He says, God has set, basically, I'm paraphrasing, he set your geography and your generation. The years that you're alive are strategically set by God and the place that you live. So God's, in a sense, chosen this generation for you and you for this generation. It's not an accident that you're alive now, that you're active in this particular cultural moment. So one thing that Peter is calling the people to do is to embrace where you are, to embrace where you're living. Another thing he's calling us, how he's calling us to respond is to realize, as I mentioned, that God is not panicked. One thing I love in this passage, particularly verse two, is um, if you really look at this and sit in it for a while, it's beautiful to me how on schedule and on track and on point, God seems to be from what Peter says here. How on schedule and on track and on point. Everything is going according to plan. Uh, Peter says here, um, he's talking to these Christians again, these elect exiles, these pilgrim priests, and he's saying, um, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Or other words, uh, through his Spirit, he has plucked you out and set you apart for his special purposes to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Peter's not joining the anxiety of the moment. He's not kind of coming up on a group of people who are freaking out and now he's starting to freak out and he's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Peter is saying, um, God's known you since before time began. He's been pursuing you. He's had plans for your, for your good, for your favor, for your resurrection since before he said, let there be light. And every detail of history leading up to this moment in your life, he has painstakingly planned. And uh, he's not freaking out because he has set you apart for a very special work in this moment, in this land, in this culture, in this campus, in your program, in your house, on schedule, on track, on point, on time. It seems to be a God who is still calmly pursuing his plan A, who didn't have to ditch the plan and move to another one, but is still calmly moving ahead 
with his original intention to save people out of the world, to then commission as search and rescue people to go back out and to bring more that he will save out of the world. That's been his plan from day one. That's what we'll spend a few weeks talking about in the weeks ahead. We see also in this how God sees you and locates you. How do we respond by knowing that God sees you where you are? In those theater rehearsals, in the kitchen at Chipotle, in the living room at Pineview, back home over Christmas break, wherever you are where you feel so strange and different in a bad way, and you feel the temptation to just diminish or minimize your love for Jesus or your faith in him or your belief in scripture, wherever that place is, God says, I see you there. How do I know that from the passage? Because um, Peter is, he, Peter's doxing these Christians. He's, he's giving their zip codes and their specific little outpost villages. And he's saying, you feel overlooked? You feel invisible to God? You feel like you, you're the only person kind of walking with Jesus or wanting to grow in Jesus in your little neck of the woods? Well, God sees you. What it sounds like in the passage is Peter outing these Christians. You live in Pontus? I see you. You're, a, you're, a, you're one of the tiny little handful of, handful of Christians in, in a big town of Galatia in modern-day Turkey? I got your coordinates. I know you're there. I know you feel like this tiny little minority in this dominant culture that doesn't share any of your values. I see you. I got eyes on you. You live in Bithynia? You live in Athens, Georgia? You're in this department or that program or in this friend group or this family. I got you. I'm watching. I see. I didn't overlook you. I see you. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. That's the joy that this gives us. So God is really calling you. If if you're trying to get to a place of simplicity, what has been talking about? Embrace where you are. We live in exile in this life as migrant missionaries, as pilgrim priests, as alien ambassadors. We don't fit in. You're not like the rest. It does bring bad social pressure sometimes. There might be pressure to to minimize or assimilate or compromise. Yes, that's where you do life. But that's the norm. That's what it's supposed to feel like. It's a feature, not a glitch. What's the other word? I said tonight we're just really talking about two words, pilgrim and priest or elect exile, which is Peter's Peter's words for those two words, elect exiles, to God's elect exiles scattered, scattered out in the middle of all these places. What he's saying is uh, that, that, that phrase to God's elect exiles, elect means chosen, And if you really want to know um, what's a biblical definition of what Peter's talking about when he says God has chosen you, um, at 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 a logical level, he had to because dead people can't come alive to God. Dead people can't want God. Dead people can't ask Jesus into their heart. Dead people are dead. God must resuscitate you before you can breathe, before you can speak, before you can pray, before you can want Salvation is so much better than Jesus giving you a script of things you need to do or a formula that you need to follow. It is God taking initiative, making the first move, not waiting to be asked, but coming to you in mercy and making you alive. This is what Peter says in verse 3. 
This isn't on your page, but it's the very next verse that comes after this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Cause the resurrection of Jesus to become your resurrection too. Who's doing the acting there is what Peter's drawing attention to. God caused new birth in you. If he's not caused new birth in you, ask him to cause new birth in you. Tell him all about your inability. Tell him all about how you can't make yourself alive. Tell him about it. Cast your poverty on him. Cast your need on him. And watch him make you alive. But Peter is saying God has caused his people to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just as he's caused you to be resurrected from the dead. You don't resurrect from half alive or sick. You resurrect from death. So God is, God is saying to you, the world may not value you in what you value, but God values you. Not because you're special. He's made you special. The word sanctify means set apart. He has set you apart as special. He has unique, specific purposes for you in this world. You're his special possession. His treasured possession. He's pursued you from long before you were born. He has chosen to bring life to you. Where do we end? Where do we go from here? Because the whole point of him choosing you and setting you apart and making you alive is to turn you right back around and to send you out as an ambassador, a missionary, a priest to the world that we've been talking about. Some of you might be here and you're uncomfortable with some of the language we're using because you're like, man, it sounds like Ben is doing culture war stuff. Another Christian just kind of throwing shade at the world. You might have felt that. But do you see, God has called his people to himself and set them apart to go back into that world and to love and serve it. To be a missionary to it. A priest for it. That's beautiful. That's brilliant. That God would go and literally with two feet, Scripture says how beautiful are the feet. It's talking literally that bring good news. He will, he will use your two feet to walk this good news to the doorsteps of the people that he has put you around and put around you. Uh, all I want to do before we finish is just give you the most, the simplest picture of what a priest is and why the world that thinks it doesn't want God actually does want priests, actually does want you to own your special calling and to step into the big pair of shoes God put in front of you. That's all I want to do because we're going to spend the next few weeks really burrowing down deep into that stuff. First, have you ever, have you ever known, have you ever had a priest in your corner, known a pastor, a youth minister, a counselor, a mentor, Someone who you knew beyond the shadow of any doubt was for you. Someone that you came to trust. 
someone that was far enough ahead of you that you really did believe they can help me. They're not just like my friend who can empathize. They can help. Have you ever known anyone like that in your life? I've known a handful of people like that. I'm blessed to. I bet most of you all have a person or two in your life, a priest, a pastor, a friend, uh, just a couple, Tuck and Stacy, my pastor and his wife uh, up in Philadelphia, and Chris and Bonnie, two of my best friends, me and Anna's friends, two couples who, when I was in Philadelphia in some of the hardest years of my life, carried me. They prayed over me. They prayed with me. They prayed for me. They just sat with me. On nights I needed someone to just sit with me. Their presence and their failure to get kind of um, annoyed with me and all, that, all the need that I had persuaded me that maybe Jesus wasn't annoyed with me either, but responded in gentleness to my need. They were priests to me. Oh, how I needed them and how I wanted them. Have you ever known anyone like that? That's a priest. You think the world wants that? I know the world wants it. Last Monday night, um, you might have been watching this game, but the Buffalo Bills were uh, playing the Bengals, and a 24-year-old named Demar Hamlin is that? Demar Hamlin uh, made a made an innocent little tackle. It wasn't even a big tackle. And he got up after tackling this guy and took about two steps and collapsed on the field. Just went limp. And the entire stadium and anyone watching on TV and both teams sat there for the next 30 minutes as the trainers initially rushed out to see what was the matter and then started doing CPR for 30 minutes. And as an ambulance came out onto the field to defibrillate him, to load him up, and to take him to the hospital. People were traumatized. People who just saw it on TV were traumatized. There were 280-pound offense linemen gritty NFL veterans weeping in the arms of their brothers. Both teams, all the coaches, all the staff knelt down on the field to pray for their friend who had just been taken off unresponsive with a heart that wasn't beating. The New York Times, of all places, wrote an article the next day. This is how it started. As the ambulance carrying the injured Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin rolled slowly off the field in Cincinnati on Monday night, a huddle of players and team staff knelt in a massive yet intimate circle on the field. They bowed their heads, some placing hands on each other's shoulders and others with tears streaming down their faces in a moment of spontaneous prayer led by the team's chaplain. The hushed crowd at Paycor Stadium burst into applause as the players knelt to pray, and they applauded again as they rose up. It was the first of many prayers in an extraordinary display of public piety that unfurled across the nation in the hours and days after Mr. Hamlin's collapse. In the hours and days after that, here's what I saw. Dan Orlovsky was uh, an old NFL quarterback. He's an ESPN commentator now. He was on the air processing what it was like to see that. He had a panel. And he says in the middle of this, I'm tired of everyone talking about their thoughts and their prayers for DeMar. I want to pray for him now. I feel led to pray for him now. 
and he prays to Jesus live on the air and the other people on the panel bow their heads with tears going down their faces and they pray. A journalist caught a picture of a random Bills fan who, was, who had left the stadium when DeMar left the stadium and he went to the hospital and the journalist who caught this picture tweeted, this is Andrew. He's a Bills fan from Western New York. He came to Cincinnati to attend last night's game. He's about to get on the road to drive back home. Said he had come to kneel and pray. He told me he's feeling lost and shocked. This next one is amazing. A commentator named Nick Wright on Fox Sports. I saw this. He was processing what he saw and the trauma of watching that happen right in front of him. One of his close friends is one of his partners. He's on the show with him. He was on a panel and he says this. Nick Wright, who's not a Christian, says this. Two of the closest people in the world to me are my wife and you. He points to his friend. Two of, the, two of the closest people in the world to me are deeply religious, and I'm not. And it made me a little envious in that moment. And since then, that I didn't have that foundation, that there's, that there's this greater purpose or higher power. I feel like at times like this, when there's an inexplicable tragedy, I'm left flailing about. He said, I'm envious of my wife and my friend, these priests who pray, who seem to know this God that I seem to know is there. Are you all seeing what I'm seeing in all of this? Are you able to detect what's right beneath our nose? The world wants priests, people who are near to God, who can help draw them near to God. I get it. It doesn't come out often. It takes tragedy. It takes desperation. It's rare moments. But don't you see it? The world wants priests. And Jesus has called you and chosen you and set you apart and sanctified you and is now equipping you and coaching you and helping you to unleash you on the world as that priest. The burden bearer, the helper, the prayer warrior, the patient listener, the friend who's there even when you don't have words to say. Near to God helping draw others near to God. That's what we're talking about this semester because that's what Peter writes about in 1 Peter. Pilgrims and priests by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is who you have made us to be. We groan because we're pilgrims, exiles, sojourners, migrants, the tiny minority in a culture that does, doesn't value or see truth or reality what we do. And yet, this high and holy calling to move out towards that same world in love and in humility and in service to represent you, to show them you. I pray that the fruit of this, these conversations in the next few weeks would be priests who own their calling, who live into the calling and move out into this campus and this city as priests. And I pray that a big smile would break out across your face as you see us fulfilling our destiny in you. I pray this in your name.